Before we begin this episode, we would like to say that in the spirit of reconciliation, that we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to the land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome back to another episode of Spaghettification. I'm the artist formerly known as the Drunk Astronomer, now known as Astropunk. And I'm Astro Sefi. Today we're really happy to have you this Dr. Alice Gorman. Dr. Alice Gorman is an internationally recognised leader in the field of space archaeology. I'm getting glimpses of Indiana Jones here, uh, but in space <laughs> in a spacesuit. Uh, her research on space exploration has been featured in National Geographic, New Scientists and Archaeology magazines. She's a, she is a faculty member of the International Space University Southern Hemisphere Space Program in Adelaide. Her book, Stop to Space Junk versus the Universe. Now, that actually sounds like a really cool book. I'm, I might actually try and read it. Not that I read books. Um, Archaeology in the Future uh, won the NIB Award, People's Choice, and the John Mulvaney Book Award, as well as being shortlisted for the New South Wales and Queensland Premier's Award and the Adelaide Festival Award. That's a lot of awards to either win or be shortlisted <laughs> for. So it's definitely got to be a good book. She's worked extensively in, in Indigenous heritage management, providing advice for mining industry, urban development, government departments, local councils and native title groups in New South Wales, West Australia, South Australia and Queensland. And is a specialist in stone tool analysis. That's something I'm actually really keen to talk about. Uh, and the Aboriginal use of bottle glass after European settlement. Alice is a member of the Advisory Council of the Space Industry Association of Australia. That is not the Australian Research Space Exploration um, Group, <laughs> a member of Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies and president of the Anthropological Society of South Australia. And when she's not doing all, all of that, she tweets as Dr. Space Junk. Wow, that's quite a bio. <laughs> so I'm really excited to ask you our first question because I relate to this very uh, strongly. Are you able to tell us what got you into astronomy and also where your love of archaeology comes from? Well, I guess the astronomy thing comes from growing up on a farm where you have a fantastic view of the night sky. And as a little kid, I was just fascinated by the stars and I was very upset that it wasn't possible to go and visit them. <laughs> and I had all kinds of theories. I figured the only way I was going to get to go to the stars was if I could be reincarnated in the future when we had spaceships that could travel there. So as a child, I did a lot of investigation of um, theories of reincarnation solely for the purpose of going to space. And, like, that still could be a thing that, but the problem for my little child head was that you wouldn't know if you were the same person or not, so it didn't really work. Uh, so, so really it was just from looking up at the stars and wondering what they were. So I had the ambition to be an astronomer or an astrophysicist perhaps, but I also, and, and I don't mind admitting this, like it's the ultimate nerd activity, I also loved reading encyclopedias. And, and you know, they kind of start with the origins of the universe and the earth and the solar system and then you sort of the origins of life and then dinosaurs. And I don't think there's a, a little kid with access to a book that doesn't love dinosaurs. Anyway, then it moved on to the there's human Big life. kids that like dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> well, let's amend that to say there isn't an adult with access to a book that doesn't like dinosaurs either. Uh, so when I was reading through these encyclopedias, I kind of got stuck in archaeology. So 
that became another huge passion uh, alongside the stars. And then sort of by various ways and means, I kind of ended up um, becoming an archaeologist. So I did a, an undergraduate degree in archaeology, although I still did sort of astronomy and tried to keep my physics up at the same time. And that kind of knowledge never goes astray, it has to be said. Uh, and then, yeah, then I I became a professional archaeologist working in the heritage management industry. And I kind of forgot about all the star stuff for, for years and years, I guess. And then one day I was actually, it was after I'd finished my PhD, and I was working on a big heritage project in Queensland. And there was, you know, people talk about light bulb moments, but I, I had an actual light bulb moment when I got home from work one day and I was just sitting on my veranda with a beer looking up at the stars and I realised there was space junk out there as well and then I realised that was an archaeological record just like all of the stone tools that I'd been working on as part of the project and and that was it, like the light bulb illuminated and I knew what I had to do. I knew this was my direction so from that moment I just threw everything into pursuing the archaeology of outer space so cool (laughs) (laughs) I've been um, lucky enough to be working with Dorian Hammaker at Melbourne Uni this semester teaching archaeoastronomy which is very different but um, has sort of similar ideas of going into the past and looking at how people interact with the sky and I think um, it sounds like you know, it's a similar sort of thing for you where it's like, um, you know, humans interacting with the sky and, and looking into that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That, like archaeoastronomy uh, is quite different um, for the listeners. It's yeah. the study of the human material culture from yes. the past, which is relating to how humans uh, understand the cosmos and the stars. Um, but, yeah, the, like the stuff now and in the future, it's just different kinds of technologies and um, different groups of people. So, yeah, it is it is very, very similar to archaeoastronomy in that way. Following on from that, you kind of answered a little bit of how you got into the field of space archaeology. But what was it about the space junk that sort of went, the space junk is archaeology, but was it, was it just that link to archaeology or was there more to it about the fact that it is space junk and there's not a great deal of um, knowledge, I guess, about what will happen to it or what could, could happen with it? So is there something else as well, as well as just sitting out there with a beer, staring at the stars and seeing the space junk and going, oh, I can link these two together? Was there, was there another driving force at all or was that literally just it? It kind of was just it, but actually now that you kind of say it like that, I guess there was another element to it. So um, in Australia in particular, when we're doing cultural heritage management, there's a a document called the Burra Charter, named after the town of Burra in South Australia, which has principles for conserving cultural significance. And uh, I've used this extensively in my heritage work, which, you know, most archaeologists in Australia would. Um, And one of the first questions that popped in, well, actually there were two things that popped into my head, I suppose, after I sort of sat there contemplating the fact that space junk was material culture, just like all the bits of stone I've been looking at for, well, most of the rest of my career. So the question that came into my head was, was okay, so this stuff is actually in space, it's outside Earth, 
but can I still apply the Bharachata to this stuff? Like, so I didn't know. So I had this big question. So it, I thought, well, probably it does, but I just don't know. So, I, you know, I, sh- I should do something about this. The second thing I thought was, well, you know, I've spent, you know, all these years of my career uh, working with Aboriginal communities um, on their heritage. So are there any ways in which Indigenous culture intersects with stuff in space well this is sort of a a bit of an unusual perspective in the aerospace world because you don't get a lot of overlap between these two um, areas uh so this this meant you know I thought well I've I've got to find out like I just didn't know any of these things so I went I started researching space history in Australia and of course one of the aspects of this is the deliberate exclusion of indigenous people from space industry at places like the Woomera rocket launch site i mean it's different these days but in those days it was just assumed that that you know there's this whole rhetoric about space belongs mm-hmm. to all of humanity and it's sort of our a cultural birthright and there's an imperative to explore outer space yeah. but that clearly doesn't apply to everybody in the same way. So um, finding out those stories about how, you know, Indigenous land had been used to develop um, rocket technology uh, and all the different sort of ways in which those those different communities overlapped in the same landscape, mm-hmm. how, you know, the alienation um, of Aboriginal people from their land was also an alienation from their capacity to participate as equals in space travel or space technology. So so that kind of became a direction as well. And I guess both those things sort of tied together that archaeological work with uh, the ways that I wanted to look at outer space. That's amazing. Yeah, that's something I, yeah, never really thought of before. (laughs) I I know that when you talk about the Borough Charter and, and cultural heritage management plans, I know about that through my work. Um, as an architect so I quite often have to fill out especially in in um, the Bayside Melbourne area there's a lot of sites where I have to go through a, a template check sheet to make sure that I'm, I'm not needing a cultural heritage management plan and if I do then what I need so that that side of things makes sense to me but I never really thought about it like you're saying when you're talking about that with with space I wanted to add one more thing to that question leading on from what we're talking about with the borough chart and that is so you're talking about Indigenous, well, Aboriginal people being involved in astronomy and, and research and the future of space, space exploration. But what about the impact of space technology, satellites, things like that on um, Aboriginal astronomy? All of a sudden, the night sky that, that they were looking at mm. is different now. The ISS going over oh. and Starlink and satellites appearing out of everywhere. Has there been any impact from that point of view? Well, there's, at the moment, there's um, across the world a huge dark skies movement um, to protect people's ability to go outside and actually uh, see the stars and understand the heavens um, using, you know, their appropriate cultural knowledge. And this, so this is turning into a big issue. And Indigenous astronomers Crystal DiNapoli and Carly Noon have written about this very eloquently in their recent book uh, on Sky Country, which I recommend everybody go out and get a copy of. So, yeah, there's a lot of discussion about how that changes the meaning of things. And and it's a bit, you know, you sort of think here's this over 65,000-year-old tradition of uh, looking at the night sky and using astronomical knowledge as sort of part of everyday life. 
Now people have to look up and see Elon Musk's Starlink satellites, which are controversial in a whole range of ways. And, you know, this is happening so fast as well. And, you know, from my previous work, I mean, it's it's extremely common for changes in technology and material culture to be incorporated into um, Indigenous ways of understanding the world, you know, in, in a whole bunch of kind of really interesting and creative ways. Um, so, you know, I'm sure eventually this is something that will happen for the way the night sky is changing. But I suppose that an aspect of this, it's sort of like it's done without consent or consensus. So this is just like, you know, the, the, what you can see when you look up is a result of a whole lot of very wealthy satellite companies trying to make a profit. So I think that kind of changes how you look at things. So it's all it's fine to have artificial objects up there, which have, you know, been there for uh, since 1957, and, and we can look up and we can pick them out amongst all of the other things um, that you can see out there. But I suppose, I don't know, like it certainly changes how I feel about these objects. You know, some people love them, some people hate them, but it, it does mean that um, areas of, of traditional knowledge which have been under threat for such a long time, so, so what's the context in which you're trying to make sure that knowledge survives and gets passed on? And What exactly does it become when you've got all of this other stuff? up there so I think these you know these are important questions thankfully I think um, I'm sure you'd both um, agree like there's a lot more interest now in these kinds of impacts and in the space world um, I mean I'd have to say there's a lot of there's a lot of uninformed people but there's also a lot of people with goodwill who are kind of thinking about this and thinking well is this okay should we be making different kinds of decisions. I guess things are afoot. My kind of feeling about this stuff is we, we do need to be keeping a pretty sharp eye on what's going on because we could lose something precious and valuable before we even know. So I noticed um, I did get an email actually, Steffi, and I'm sure you probably know about it, from from Dwayne. He sent out to a lot of people about a, a new mm-hmm. course or a new class. That oh, yes, I am. To do with protection of dark skies. Yeah, it's going to be the first, I think, in the Southern Hemisphere that will be offered. It's really interesting because the idea that um, Dwayne and others have is to run it from three different schools. So there's the physics side of um, the astronomy, but then there's also the ecology side of um, animals and things losing their their nighttime sky and getting affected by this increasing light. And that affects, you know, all sorts of different processes that go on in brains and other things and then also the technology side of you know there's things like energy efficient lights but they have a different spectral profile than other lights and that can you know they're more blue that can affect animals in different ways and and so trying to bring all of these different things together uh which i'm really excited about hopefully i will be involved in that <laughs> when doing gets back from europe <laughs> and that kind of thing like it would be terrific for a whole bunch of satellite engineers and mm. other kinds of aerospace engineers yeah. to do courses like this just to yeah. get a better cultural context for the work that they're yeah. doing yeah, this a better understanding of the impacts that their equipment can have. Mm-hmm. Um, that's for sure. Um, mm-hmm. The the club that I'm a, a member of, um, the Astronomical Society of Victoria, um, as part of what I'm doing as president at the moment, is trying to push for um, us to to work with regional areas to um, help them and also help the uh, what was it 
Dark Sky, so International Dark Sky Association of Victoria, who are part of the International Dark Sky Association, to get some areas that are um, set up as dark sky reserves. So I know Malakuta are interested in doing that as well. Nice. Um, we've been yeah. doing events out at Lake Tyrrell and Sea Lake this year, and we're doing two major events next year up there. Uh, and the idea of that is is it also to get that set up as a dark sky reserve and then to help the local Aboriginal community set up um, an astronomical sort of research facility sort of with a planetarium. They want to have a planetarium up there out in the lake. Um, oh, that's to awesome. Teach people. <laughs> um, and so we're going to try and help them get that going. So you're right, it, there is a big push for it, to protecting skies and um, educating people at the moment. So. What a terrific project. And, and that's that amazing. Yeah. Level too, yeah, just so people can, don't have to, they can access it where they are and, and contribute mm-hmm. their very, yeah. you know, local and specific knowledge. I think that's terrific. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a bit more about your research into space junk because we haven't really talked about that much yet. No, and we've then, never covered the topic of space junk before. On, no, on the it's yeah. honestly not yeah. something I'd even heard about before I became aware of your work. So, <laughs> why? I got excited when I stumbled across Alice on Twitter. I'm like, oh, my gosh, Space Junk, this is cool. We've got to get her on. Oh, well, where, where do I start with Space Junk? So, um, <laughs> so one of the things that um, I want to do is, uh, you know, coming back to the cultural heritage management plans and things like that. So um, there's all these plans to get rid of Space Junk, which we have to do. There's, there's too much of it up there. It's a major environmental hazard. Uh, and, you know, we, we're risking ruining Earth orbit for future use if we don't do something about it. So um, my sort of thinking about this, I guess, is, is first of all, like in on Earth, we have this concept of the environment and we have all of these safeguards and pieces of legislation that are set up to try and stop terrible and irreversible things being done to the environment. Okay, so they don't work that well a lot of the time, it has to be said, but at least they're there, at least they're trying to, to mitigate the impacts of human industrial activity. So in space, first of all, we don't have any of that stuff. Second of all, there's this very strong idea that you only have an environment when there's living things in it. So space doesn't isn't an environment. Thinking is starting to change around that, but but sort of marginally. So my idea was, okay, we really do need to think differently about this. And a sort of starting point is to say, okay, well, let's look at the cultural significance of different bits of space and think about how we might uh, manage that orbital environment to retain some of that cultural significance. People just say space junk as if it's just, you know, like the contents of a garbage can, but it ranges from whole satellites that no longer work, some of them really early. The oldest one is 1958, you know, up to massive things the size of two buses and down to little tiny particles, nanoparticles. The bits we have to get rid of are the bigger bits because they provide the greater collision risk, but they're not all the same. Like there's some incredible objects up there Um, and my argument so people sometimes you know they get upset and they say Alice don't you understand that we have to clean up space junkets yeah 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 yeah. I get that I'm not stupid what I'm saying (laughs) is if you want to get rid of space junk ask the question first does this have any cultural significance and what is the risk that it poses in terms of collision and interestingly a piece of research has shown that the longer something is up there the less of a risk it poses, which kind of makes sense because it's survived all this time. 
So if it was going to be a high risk, then that would have happened in the first 10 years. So if it's been around for a while, then we can say it's likely that the collision risk is low and then we can say, well, is it important? And a lot of the, and well, you will know the Bharatata, so we can classify its importance according to um, historical, scientific, social, aesthetic and spiritual aspects. And a lot of this stuff actually has social significance. So this means there are communities on earth for whom it's important. And and perhaps my favourite example of this is Palapa A1, which was Indonesia's first satellite. And it was telecommunications satellite. And it's still up there. It's a piece of space junk. But the symbolic aspect of this satellite was that it was unifying, you know, I think something like 3,000 islands in Indonesia with hundreds of different language groups. And the satellite was kind of a, a saying, well, we're one community. So it's got social significance. And do we want to say to Indonesia, we don't care about your satellite, it's junk, let's zap it out of the sky? Well, I would say no, let's not do that. So that's kind of of one, I suppose, angle of attack um, for looking at space junk. Um, Another way I've been thinking about it, Actually, now that you've asked this question, I'm thinking of all of <laughs> The can <laughs> of worms has opened. <laughs> so let me fix this in my brain before I forget. So there's there's all of this stuff that we don't really know about. Like if you if you start to investigate what these bits of junk are, all these interesting stories start to emerge. And my new favourite bit of space junk is called a D-spin yo-yo. And I just like a piece of space junk that's called a yo-yo. I have to know more about these. And these are light up and has it got Coca-Cola branding on it? (laughs) Not at this stage, but what's the bet that some future advertiser will see this? It's going to happen, isn't it? (laughs) So these are like very dense, solid lumps of metal which are attached by cords or springs to um, a a satellite And when it's released from its rocket, when it's in orbit, it's spinning and they need to slow the spin so that it can point in the right direction and do the things that it's supposed to do. And the way they do this for some satellites is they they then release these weights on the cords. This slows them down and then they let the weights go. So there's 268 of these yo-yo D-spin weights floating around out there. You wouldn't want to collide with one because they're they're a really interesting piece of technology and just asking that I thought well I don't know how many of them there are so you go tracking down all the archives and find out there's 268 known ones still in orbit we probably can't see them they'd be too small to see but they're out there somewhere and they tell a little technology story so I really like that and (laughs) the other thing I've been looking at so so people you know there's space junk and you've got all these bits of supposed garbage but they're part of the space environment now so it's not sort of like space and meteorites and natural stuff and the human stuff they're all interacting together that's now the space environment we're never going to be able to remove all the human stuff from it it's there forever now so we should start thinking of them as the same entity and thinking more about how they interact and maybe not think of it as, you know, something terrible and bad. I'm not trying to deny there's not big problems there, of course, but look at it as some kind of new entity that might have emergent properties that we don't even understand right now. So kind of looking at it from a more creative way, I guess. But the main point of that kind of line of thought is just that, like, this is the environment now. The environment is 
a combination of all of those micrometeorites and atomic oxygen and plasma clouds and all that stuff and all of this human material there. Mm -hmm. So if we treat them separately, we're actually not getting the whole picture. So Mm -hmm. other place my space junk. I have a follow-up question that Mark wrote, but then also one that I'm thinking about too. You don't have to read the one I wrote if you don't like it. No, I, I like the one you wrote. I will read it. But first, my curiosity. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I'm wondering when we're talking about space junk, how far up in the atmosphere or into space are we? So I'm a regular listeners will know I'm a Hubble Space Telescope user and mm-hmm. that is about 500 mm-hmm. kilometres above the surface. So are the things that you're mm-hmm. talking about sort of risks to our um, you know, satellites, communications, that sort of thing? Or is this stuff that's further out? Maybe if you've got some context there, that would be, I think, pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, the highest density of stuff is in low Earth orbit. So that's mm-hmm. up to generally around a 1,000 kilometres above Earth. And probably most of it is sort of under about 500, oh, well, maybe 500 to 700 kilometres. So, so, yeah, Hubble's sort of Hubble's <laughs> in the um, firing line. Yeah. So, and then you've got um, in medium Earth orbit, higher mm-hmm. than that, there's a lot of navigation satellites like the GPS mm-hmm. constellation. And yes. then you shoot right out to 35,678 or something kilometres. Uh, and that's where all the telecommunication satellites are mm-hmm. and the Chinese navigation constellation. Yeah. And then a bit higher than that, again, you've got the graveyard orbit full <laughs> of zombie satellites. Sometimes different satellites are likened to zombies. That's got a lower density of material. They all tend to be moving in sort of the same direction. So there's fewer collision risks up there. But, and there's probably some that are, because something, uh, you know, I th- I'm sure in a lot of people's minds, you think about orbits yeah. around Earth and you think yeah. it, like it's very clockwork, things just go in their mm-hmm. little path. But in fact, it's very chaotic. This is nonlinear dynamics and things can behave unpredictably and often do. Sometimes that unpredictable behaviour is the sign that Russian spacecraft are making mm-hmm. dodgy manoeuvres. So if you see something yeah. happening that shouldn't be happening, it can be nefarious. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that, so there's a lot of stuff a lot of orbits that can de- decay quickly or, or yeah. just sort of go a bit haywire for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything's being watched and monitored by a number of different national or international agencies. But, yeah, so that's a big distance. So this is about, yeah. you know, about 40,000 kilometres above yeah, Earth. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's kind of higher than that as well, floating around yeah. in odd places. But, yeah, it's a pretty big span of space. I want to go back just a step. I heard something in there and I'm like, hang on. You said um, nefarious. Like, does, does that actually happen? Has it been known that satellites have been or, or objects up there have been purposely pushed in specific directions or, you know, set back down or whatever it might be? Things like, has that happened? That hasn't happened. Oh, but, um <laughs> But there's certainly, like, particularly Russian satellites often make odd, unscheduled movements closer okay. to other satellites. So the idea is they're, you know, trying to intercept intelligence or something. Ah, like, okay. Sort of, so there's a, a concept called dual use, which means something has both a civilian and a military use. And, look, I don't know the percentage, but I would say 50% of all the 
working satellites have some dual use aspect. So when the Russians do something dodgy, you sort of think, oh, what's what's going on here? Mm-hmm. The thing that has happened is anti anti satellite missile tests. Mm-hmm. We've had like maybe I don't know, maybe five of these, and there was one just the Russians performed one last year and I'm I'm talking about the Russians but the US has done it too and India has done it too and so has China so they basically fire a missile from earth up to one of their own spacecraft if they did it to someone mm. else's that would be a fairly <laughs> major yeah international <laughs> <laughs> so America and that fire missiles at their own spacecraft yeah so it's a demonstration of power it creates a lot more space junk so it's not smart not a smart thing to do but it says to everybody else watching, hey, look, we can do this. We have the capacity to take your satellites out. We're just choosing not to do it. Man, that's it's, intense. It's so a that's bit scary. sort of a yeah. question that I had um, when you were talking about that. So if you are destroying satellites and you're making more space junk, is there a sort of size mm. of space junk that is the most dangerous? So, I mean, even, you know, oh. really tiny pieces when you're travelling at high speeds can cause problems. But... Is it sort of like, you know, as you get bigger and bigger, you're like, you know, Jupiter in the solar system or everything's going to hit you? So the most dangerous event is when two reasonable sized things collide with each other. And and reasonable sized is over 10 centimetres in the space chunk world. So like so that that causes a catastrophic breakup and each object. For those watching at home, I mean, for those who are watching 10 centimetres, that's, that's, I got the scale ruler out, I couldn't help. That's 10 centimetres. That, that's actually quite sizable. Yeah, and a CubeSat is 10 by 10 by 10 centimetres, so mm. I and, imagine and quite common. Like, Travelling at incredibly high speeds, an average 7 kilometres a second. So the, the tiny stuff mm. is bombarding everything all the time, all mm-hmm. the time, and uh, over time that can cause like a degradation of the mm-hmm. material a spacecraft is yeah. made out of, but highly unlikely to cause something to explode or yeah. to create serious damage, but it's constant and it's there all the time. So the larger the spacecraft, the bigger the surface area it presents for collision, mm. and, and that's kind of okay with that little tiny stuff. But then you get into the medium size class, which is basically between 1 centimetre and 10 centimetres. So you're, prob- you're unlikely to get a catastrophic breakup unless it you know hits a particular weak spot. But it can make satellites not function. It can break itself. It can cause all sorts of damage, and then you get the 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 big bits colliding. So yeah, it's kind of exactly as you said, Steph. It's kind of like a balance between mm. the surface area and yeah. the debris flux and mm. all kinds of things. So the the actually the most dangerous piece of space junk at this point in time yeah. is a European Space Agency satellite called EMBISAT which was launched, I think it was 1992, and it's massive and it's uncontrolled. It has no power left and it can't be communicated with. And it's a huge collision risk because it's so big and it's in a congested orbit, but there's no way to get get it down. Like you can't manoeuvre it, you can't talk to it, can't do anything. It's also pretty tricky. So we don't have yet a successful technology for removing something. And the sad thing about this is, so everybody says, you know, it's a tragedy of the commons problem. 
mm-hmm. if everybody acts in their own individual interests, they will destroy everybody's capacity to use orbit, including their own. You know, that's literally what they do. So you have, there are guidelines for how to minimise the amount of debris you create in a mission. I was um, at a conference once and and somebody said that at least 40% of all missions don't follow those relatively mm-hmm. simple um, guidelines, a lot for reasons of cost. I mean, it's it's an issue with CubeSats, for example, because that's their whole virtue, that they're small and um, modular and um, cheap to launch. You take away those advantages if you start adding things to them uh, that give them the capacity to manoeuvre mm-hmm. more or to bring themselves down or something like that. So there's payoffs and balances there. Basically, we could we could have done a lot more to solve this problem now if there yeah. was actually more will from some of the main polluters of space. And let's name them, shall we? That would be <laughs> China, Russia. Hang on a minute, you'll, you'll have to start again because we laughed over that. US, Russia, China. See, I thought there'd be so, more than that, I- I thought there might be some other countries in there. Almost every country has launched its own satellite, but when there's just like one or two or under 10, like Australia only has, well, in fact, I should know this number because I've been working with some people on doing a survey of <laughs> spacecraft, less than 20, definitely less than 20. So we're, we're just small bickies in this mm-hmm. game. Uh, so it's really up to the people creating the problem are those big old Actually, European Space Agency, I suppose I should add, it's not quite a country, but they, mm-hmm. they're not as bad as, um, not as much in proportion to the others, but they're obviously still big launches and stuff. So you could say, well, they're the ones creating the problem. They ought to be the ones investing in cleaning mm-hmm. it up. And it's not that nothing's being done, but honestly, a lot more could be done. I think, I think the question that Mark had earlier sort of leads into that, which is what sort of things can we take away from the research that you're doing to better prepare us for future space missions or space travel? Well, I think for me one of the most important things is understanding the space environment as mm-hmm. now, well, in heritage terms, we, as Mark will know this, we call it a cultural landscape. It's the combined um, effects of human and uh, natural activities. Recognising that, it's a concept that very much comes from heritage management means we will have a better comprehension of what the space environment is now and we'll make hopefully better decisions about um, what we keep and what we don't keep. So I think that's an important point. I suppose the other one is something I say, you know, I used to say when I was a full-time consultant, this is a discussion I'd have with my clients all the time, which is plan for the heritage early. Don't leave it to the last minute. And one of the interesting things about heritage is that all of the professionals can make those assessments and say, well, this is culturally significant, this isn't, but the people will have their voice heard. So you can say, oh, this is, thing is no big deal, but the community who feels connected to it will disagree. And I think that's I think something the aerospace engineers often uh, aren't sort of fully clued into is all of the other communities of people who actually have some interest in or investment in different things in space. So I think there's also a sort of a community engagement story around this or or an aspect which is giving people outside the aerospace community acknowledgement of their interests and a voice at the table. And I think that's very much something that Heritage does. It says it's not just about you. There are other stakeholders. There are other people who have a right to be heard. So uh, I think that's something that taking the Heritage approach sort of offers to 
better managing the space environment. From where I sit, it, it's it's a big issue considering what we're doing with space exploration and things like that, not just from a, a heritage side of things but just from a future humanity point of view as well and, and trying to come up with solutions oh. to the mm. problems we're creating with Space Jump. So on that note, I'm going to ask a question about your book. So what I want to know is, will I read your book, Dr. Space Junk and the Universe versus the Universe, Archaeology in the Future? Can you so can you tell us a bit about that? So I, I wrote this book um, very much for a general audience. And it also contains um, a bit of autobiographical information, I guess. So it's it's kind of like it's a bit of, of my story and it's also the story of all of these objects and places um, that I completely love uh, and also a bit speculative, I guess. So I'm thinking about the future. I'm thinking about what we might need to do. I'm thinking what archaeology can bring to the future of people in space. So, so I suppose you could say it's a book full of stories about space junk and stories about the future and all the things that I like. Probably a bit self-indulgent, a book about things that I like, but I think other people like them too. Look, if Fred Watson can write books about the things that he likes, anybody can write books about the things that they like. <laughs> so I hope one way or other you might listen or read bits of it. So is I'm tipping as an audio book, it's available on um, you know, like most of the audio platforms? I think so. Like I think on Audible. Yeah, and yep. I'm not quite sure, but I don't think it's hard to get. All right. We will put some links. We'll find some links and we'll put them in the description, that's for sure, um, so we can promote it out okay. there for you. Going back to research now, your research also covers planetary landing sites, space habitats and terrestrial space infrastructure. Can you tell us a bit about what sort of research you can do on these sort of things? Well, sort of terrestrial infrastructure is about mm-hmm. things like launch sites like Woomera, mm-hmm. Uh, tracking stations and radio mm-hmm. telescopes. Yeah. So I've done a bit of work on the Aurora Valley tracking station outside Canberra, uh, mm-hmm. which was used to track low-Earth satellite, low-Earth orbit satellites for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also done a bit of work on the Malonglo radio telescope, yeah. some of the early um, CSIRO uh, mm-hmm. radio telescopes around Sydney. So I love an array, love it, <laughs> dish it. Because oh, oh, big, <laughs> love it, um, and, and things like that. I guess are kind of about um, looking at looking at them as places, sort of mm-hmm. what what how people interact with them, what they mean, um, the fact that big science can be embedded in a local community. So mm-hmm. I find that really fascinating. Planetary landing sites is mainly about. Venus and the Moon. Venus has a lot of Russian uh, landing sites on it and nothing's gone to the surface since 1986. Mm -hmm. And it's very distinct technology and Venus is a very harsh environment, I guess. So I'm really interested in how they developed these landing craft to survive that environment and the process of adaptation. But my main effort at the moment is looking at uh, landing sites on the Moon So the pioneer of this work was Beth Laura O'Leary from New Mexico State University. So in 1999, she did the first sort of archaeological survey remotely um, Mm -hmm. of objects left behind at Apollo 11. 
But because as a, a heritage consultant, I did a huge amount of work for mining and this is what they're planning to do on the moon. And a lot of people aren't aware that there's plans to mine the moon. And I find yeah. when they discover this that they're generally quite shocked by it and for good reason. So I'm working on devising protocols and principles for doing heritage management well on the moon. So that's kind of the last couple of years I've been working on a report for uh, an international group called the Global Expert Group for Sustainable Lunar Activity to try and get some of those ideas in there because and I don't want to be disrespectful to my engineering colleagues. They often don't even understand that heritage is an area of expertise, that it's mm. a whole profession, that there are university departments and journals and books mm. and philosophies so they think it's this quirky little thing that they've just thought up and a part of my work has been saying that's not the case and you actually need to know how heritage management is done on earth to do it properly mm-hmm. on the moon, which isn't to say we just adopt everything polis bolus from earth, mm-hmm. but we've got some pretty tried and tested principles here. We might as well see which ones work and, you know, I've already established that the Borough Charter works perfectly well. Uh, So, yeah, I'm very concerned with um, what's happening on the moon and I've also been trying to develop some principles for assessing um, natural heritage values as well, particularly around an area of the moon called permanently shadowed regions, which is the current target of most activities because there's water ice there and I think it's really important to think about them uh, in landscape terms. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, a few lunar mission designers have said to me, Alice, it's too early. We don't even understand the lunar landscape, so we, it's too early to go in and define this stuff, to which I have said, well, if you have enough information to design your mission and go and mine mm-hmm. a resource, you have enough information to make an assessment of the natural heritage value. And I have to say, it shuts them up pretty quickly. The same with architects, though, isn't it? Really, face engineers are the new architects. Because <laughs> oh. architects don't like cultural heritage management because they feel it impinges on their project. Oh, like really? Like a lot of like, do I have to? Like, yes, you do. So, space engineers for me are like they're the new <laughs> architects. Well, I'm on your side with this, and as I say to my clients, if you do it early, it will cost you less. And you'll have mm-hmm. to, you know, you'll save yourself a lot of pain. And mm-hmm. and a lot of the time they, they don't believe you and they don't do it and then they turn around and say, why are you charging me all this money? This I'm doing mm-hmm. this because you didn't take my advice in the first place. You get what you pay for. <laughs> it's the way it works. That's so true, isn't it? And that's yeah. why some of the, like, you know, there's some big mining companies that have been receiving some negative press lately. But some of them know that. And they will spend any amount of money they need to spend to get the result because they know that otherwise it could just end up in the courts. Yeah. And yeah. and and they they get you exactly as you've just said. You get what you pay for, and mm-hmm. in the long run, it can save you money. One of our issues with space is we have no courts. I mean, nobody in the heritage world wants to end up in court, but it is the way a lot of um, disputes and th- thorny issues are resolved, and it, you come out the end with at least a new position or some clarity. Mm-hmm. But we don't have any of these courts for space. So now you've written quite a few publications uh, covering topics from space junk to Aboriginal place names in the solar system. What drives you to cover these topics in the detail that you do? And is there a specific publication that you've written 
um, that you cherish the most? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. I suppose a lot of the things I write about are, I think I'm, you know, I'm quite privileged. I'm an archaeologist in the space world. It means a lot of the time I have thoughts about things that kind of wouldn't be unusual in other circles, but in the space world are a different way of thinking. So I think I kind of have a responsibility to present different perspectives and different ways of looking at things. And, and of course, you know, there's just the sometimes you find something fascinating and you just think, you know, well, I've got to go there. Like that's <laughs> too good to, to not pursue. But I guess, yeah, a lot of the things I write are, are trying to, oh, this will sound tried, I suppose, but kind of bring about more justice and equity in the world, trying to do my little bit with that. I guess one of the things I'm proudest of writing, or I was one of a team of people who wrote it, is the Declaration of the Rights of the Moon. You, if you Google it, you'll you'll probably find it. Um, I'm, I'm Googling it right now. <laughs> there are a, a bunch of us um, who were thinking about this and thought, well, the dialogue's very one-sided, so mm-hmm. everybody in the space world just accepts that lunar mining is going to happen. It's inevitable. And I keep thinking, well, it isn't actually inevitable. Nothing is inevitable. We need to kind of pull that discourse back a bit towards Mm -hmm. the centre. So me and my companions drafted. It took us, well, it took us maybe a year to kind Mm -hmm. of get the text. And we were thinking, well, how do we write something like this? Because the moon belongs to all humanity. You really need to have everyone involved. We didn't have the funding or the mechanism or anything to do that. And we had big debates about the sort of ethics of even writing this. But then we just thought, well, look, someone's got to do it. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be the product of, of gathering wide opinions and allowing everyone to have a say, but it'll be something. So we did it. We wrote the Declaration of the Rights of the Moon. And the idea is to um, acknowledge that the moon isn't just you know, another mining location for Earth. It's not just a resource for the wealthy nations who can afford to go there. It's actually its own thing, its own entity. And you could get into a huge debate about whether rights is the way, right way to kind of conceive of this. There's other approaches as well. Just putting that together, it's quite short, you know, it's it's like less Yeah, than I'm reading it now. <laughs> I, I feel that's... That's, I'd like to give a shout-out to my co-conspirators, Michelle Maloney, Thomas Gooch, Mari Margul and Keridwen Dovey, uh, because I really think we did some good work there. Reading the second line, I really like the second one, acknowledging the ancient primordial relationship between Earth and the moon. Like that, that there is like when you think of it from a, a, a context of um, culture, and and, mm. and mm. You know, civilizations through, throughout the history of the earth, like it is the most preeminent part of what people saw in the sky, other than the sun, obviously. Very powerful just reading really? it. Um, I'll get, we're going to put a link of this in the description too, Steffi, because this is really cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, it, we probably need to sort of move on to um, a phase of more consultation about it, mm. but I think it's good work. Like I'm incredibly proud. And, and I suppose also like, we, we had no funding. We weren't an organisation. We were just people with similar interests and concerns. And I think it's important to not lose sight of the fact that, that we can all have opinions and we can all do things and we shouldn't let those massive corporations and nations and organisations just assume that their voices are the only ones. Like we yeah. can 
we can have our voice out there too. And the moon can have its voice out there too, insofar as you can say that. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, the moon is a thing of such incredible beauty and power that has such, as you were talking before, Steffi, about, you know, lights, uh, animals and insects and living things have their, their, their worlds shaped by the light yeah. of the moon and just its symbolic power. Uh, I think we can't let it just become another mineral target. You have to hold on to the fact that the moon has this relationship to everyone's life and that's important. I talked to a lot of high school students and a lot of primary students who just like uh, I guess when I was a kid or when lots of us were kids are like, I want to work for NASA. Um, And, you know, these days we can tell them, well, Australia has its own space industry uh, and it's really it's really exciting. Where do you see the space industry in Australia going and sort of linking with your work as well? How does that all um, tie together? Well, we're doing something in Australia now that we never thought would happen Mm -hmm. after the the Woomera days. Mm -hmm. So the Woomera launch range operated from 1947 to around about 1972. These days it's mostly used for uh, defence projects and we thought we were never going to launch rockets again. Now there are two operational rocket launch ranges in Australia and another three being planned. So it looks like our future is partially in rocket launch. We've also Mm -hmm. got numerous satellite projects and we're going to be putting stuff on the moon sometime Mm -hmm. soon. My ideas about this is is that we shouldn't be, it's really important to have our own assets in space because we rely on other countries for Earth observation data. So we have our own telecommunication satellites, but we we have to use free data from other countries to do Mm -hmm. things like disaster management. So I think it's important that we have control over that. We can't be sort of arbitrarily uh, denied access Mm. to satellite data uh, if, if the circumstances should change. So I think that's important. But I also think we can't compete with NASA or ESA. Various areas uh, that I think we could do incredibly um, great work in sort of more niche areas. Uh, One, I think, is developing new materials for space. And this is an aspect of controlling space junk as well. Uh, Materials that are more resistant to um, uh, conductivity or collision or which are um, don't have bad decay products or a whole range of things. So I think we could work on that. There's also more people are going to be in space in the future, particularly around the moon. And I think Australia has great expertise in health and medical things. So I think we could really contribute stuff to that. And, of course, one of the benefits of that, I'm not a, like people often say, you know, here are the benefits of doing space stuff. We've got Teflon, blah, blah, blah. Actually, I'm wrong about the Teflon. But, you know, sort of, well, is it really worth the cost? But there are a lot of medical things that have been developed in space that have applications on Earth. One of them is around vision and sight. Um, so, so there are things in, in, in doing that kind of work um, does have flow-on effects on Earth, but I think that's an area Australia uh, and, you know, health really broadly, so uh, yeah. including things like food and diet and, and psychological well-being all these kinds of things. I think also, like the Australian Space Agency started well with designing its logo around uh, constellations and which are important in um, different Aboriginal communities around Australia. So if you look at the Space Agency logo, it's a map of Australia made up of different coloured dots 
And each of those dots comes from uh, a, an Aboriginally recognised um, star conjunction or something. So, so it's recognised this is an important part of how Australia uh, constructs its space identity. And there's people in the space world saying we need to pay more attention to Indigenous views across the world. I think Australia could make a really significant contribution in this area because we've been doing this sort of thing, I suppose, across a number of, of different industries for quite some time. I'm not saying it's always done well. That's clearly not the case. But at least we have some very clear principles um, for what we consider to be appropriate uh, in this sphere. And I think we could give it those to how space operates as well. Heaps of different things. I mean, I'm just scratching the surface talking about this, but as the industry grows, there's going to be a need for far more than just engineers. There's going to be a need for people with all kinds of expertise. And that for me is, well, like archaeologists. I mean, here I am. I'm an archaeologist working in space. So you can probably do almost anything and there'll be a space application. So you mentioned that you've done lots of work, not just in astronomy, but also providing advice for mining companies and working in Indigenous heritage management. So how did you get into that sort of field originally and, and what drives you to be uh, involved in those sort of areas? Yeah, good question. It's like a lot of kids, well, it's really common for people to say, when I tell them what I do, they say, oh, I always wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a <laughs> So it's an interest a lot of people have. I find when we get first-year students at Flinders University, a lot of them have ideas about working in ancient Greece or Rome mm-hmm. or Egypt, and, you know, that's all fine, that's all legitimate. And I was like that too. You know, we live in Australia. We... We're not short on archaeological stuff here in Australia. And when I finished my first degree, uh, no, I was a broke, unemployed <laughs> student, and I started uh, working on excavations and surveys, and these were, were all development contexts, so, you know, mining, urban development, infrastructure, and the heritage legislation in each state means that our clients have to consult with the traditional owners or the relevant land council or native title claimant group. So I basically I found myself working in that industry. And I suppose, um, I'm trying to remember how I felt about this when I was, you know, like a 21-year-old um, uh, going out into industry. It's a, you know, you come face-to-face with the fact that Aboriginal people were displaced from their land and had their families uh, torn apart by uh, massacres and stolen children and by massive relocation and violence and, you know, genocide, let's call it what it is. And there you are out on country with them uh, talking about how we protect, say, a, a, a scarred tree or a culturally modified tree from the road that the client wants to put through right in that spot. It's a weird space to be in because we're like the Mm -hmm. authorised white experts who are charged with conveying to the client what needs to be done about this place. But there's a, a, coming back to the borough charter, there's um, in the heritage profession in Australia, there's a strong principle that social significance comes first. So Mm -hmm. the wishes of the community and the significance they place on an object or a location or a place is of primary importance in this stuff. And you as the consultant have to hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, make the client 
uh, do something about that. So, so in that work, I suppose it's um, a difficult base to work in mm-hmm. and, you know, you can see without me explaining it, like sort of why that role is, I don't know, very compromised and complicated. But then we're also the ones who, who get to try and make that difference, who try and make a case so that the client will not destroy that place. And I guess for me, well, it's the thought that you can apply this knowledge you got with your university degree to actually um, making a difference to someone's life or working together with them to try and, you know, keep their heritage intact. So that was a huge motivation, I guess. And again, you know, it doesn't always go well, it doesn't always work. You know, always best pals with the community that you're working with, but you get incredible opportunities to be out on country um, with elders and with the young ones who are, you know, learning stuff and also learning how to be sort of capable negotiators of all of these um, organisations and infrastructures. So I suppose for me that was a that was a big motivation, like the sense that even though the situation is complicated and fraught, you can maybe do a little bit of good in the world. And I think the same way about space. I think I'm motivated by wanting to find out more about the planets and stars in the solar system. I'd love to stand on the surface of the moon. You know, in all the pictures of the moon, you don't see stars because of the way the cameras work. But if you were standing on the surface of the moon in, in the nighttime, you would see stars. Well, in the daytime, mm-hmm. you would see stars. I'd love to have that view. But I also, I don't want these places to be destroyed either. I don't want, yeah. I don't want the read of commercial space operators to to turn the moon into a wasteland so I want to I suppose I'm motivated by the same things across both those those sort of different areas of my professional mm-hmm. life I want I want for things to be there so that they can I don't want to I'm not going to I don't want to say the word inspired <laughs> but these places are you know they're always more than just a geographic location or a and collection more than just rocks Totally more than just rocks. So more than just rocks. So yeah, I I want to maybe be a way of providing new ways to to think about our connections with mm-hmm. these places, and maybe provide alternative ways to engage with them. So yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Like, it sort no, of makes it, sense. It, it, no, it makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. The way of protecting. Or you literally you, you want to protect what's out there, protect the future for yeah. everybody else to be able to experience what you'd like to experience. I guess so. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell, really. I guess we've come to the fun part of the interview, even though the whole thing's been fun. Um, the bit where we can try and trip you up, I guess. The spot uh-huh. quiz, which is five <laughs> questions um, to do with a topic, a random topic that starts with the first letter of your name. So. Oh. A for Alice is now A for airplanes. Oh. Five random questions <laughs> yeah. about airplanes. Now, Sarah Webb was our leader. Fred Watson mm-hmm. left her in the dust. He got four, four and a half out of six, I four think. Four and a half out of six. So four out of five <laughs> is what you've got yeah. to be. Um, okay. You can ask the first okay, question. On. I'm excited because I love planes. But um, why do cabin crews dim the light when the plane is landing at night? Hmm. I have no idea. 
They dim it so that they can't see, if the plane crashes, they can't see the terrible things <laughs> happening outside the aircraft. I'm going to add something to this uh, fact as well. When a plane lands at night, cabin crews dim the interior lights so that if anything goes badly and passengers need to evacuate, their eyes are already adjusted to the darkness. Oh, that's smart. So they do make you keep the windows up because if something goes wrong, people can already see inside before the plane even lands. Um, yes. Like the air, um, air traffic control and things. But also eyes adjusted to the darkness is why we don't let people into the planetarium once all the lights are off <laughs> and they get very annoyed that we've locked the doors. Ooh. Question two. Um what is the term we use for fear of flying? Oh, dear. That sounds like something I ought to know. Well, it will have <laughs> phobia on the end, I'm sure. Plane phobia, flight phobia, volophobia, wing phobia. <laughs> <laughs> the term we use to describe a fear of flying is called aerophobia. Ah! And 80% of the world has aerophobia. 80%? 80% of the world's population is afraid of flying. Oh, my gosh. Like I, I love I, flying, but I, I am also at the same too. time scared shitless of it. Question three, Steph. Yes. What is the highest amount of money ever paid for a flight? I'll give you a hint. It's lots. Um, $55,000. The highest price that's ever been paid for a flight ticket is $123,000. An Australian millionaire bought that ticket for a flight from Singapore to Sydney in 2007. It was a maiden flight of the Airbus A380. Oh, okay. I was going to say, so I wonder, did he just buy it? <laughs> did he buy out the entire flight? I wonder. <laughs> I think maybe he just bought the like the very first ticket. It might have been a, um, maybe just been a one-off. All right, question four. What? I'm going to change it slightly, but what decade was food first served on planes? I'm going to say 1960s. No, much, much, much earlier. And 1930s. Earlier. 1910s. Yes. 1919 oh. was the first year when food was served on a plane. It happened on a trip from London to Paris. Uh, it was a sandwich, but it, and it wasn't for free. It cost, cost three shillings. What was in the sandwich? That's what I want to know. Actually, that's a good question. I'm sure one of the plane page, plane, the YouTube plane channels I watch will have done something on that. And if they don't, I'll write a comment. We'll get them to find out because one of them will. Yeah, I'd be interested to know if it was like a, you know, like a, a high tea sandwich or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Did it have some delicious filling in it, or was it like yeah. fish paste or something? Yeah. Was it like tuna and <laughs> mayonnaise? Or... All right. Last question, Steph. What is the fastest plane in the world? Okay. A currently operating plane or an old plane? No. It could be an old, old plane. All right. All right. Well, it'll be a military test plane. It'll be that black thing, the black one. Oh. What's it called? Well, I reckon we can close. give you that one, Steph. Yeah, I think Wouldn't so. One? Yeah. yeah, I think so. So the Lockheed SR-71 or Blackbird achieved a record of 2,199 miles per hour, which is about 1,900 knots which is about more than three times the speed of most commercial aircraft and mm. I think about one and a half times the speed of the Concorde. So <gasps> pretty fast. <laughs> I have got cocktails under its nose at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, ah. D.C. The Concorde or the SR-71? The black one. 
Oh, oh. I'm jealous so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've yeah. had models yeah. of it as a kid. I love that. Well, um, yeah, I've never seen one in real life though. I'd love to see it. Well, people, when when I was there, people were just going nuts about this play, like nutso bananas. And I didn't know <laughs> about it, but I gathered it was a big deal. <laughs> I'm already of half a point for um, phobia as well. Yeah, so I get two points. Ooh, now I'm feeling okay. So, so I'm nowhere near afraid, but I'm feeling like I haven't covered myself. You, you, you didn't do as bad as I did, that's for sure. Alice, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been an absolute blast, and we will have to get you back because there is so much more to discuss about space junk, space archaeology, mm-hmm. and oh, wow. Everything, terrestrial space, infrastructure, space habitats, like the whole lot. Like there's so much more we can dig into in that. And um, I think it, it would be great to spend some time just discussing that and nothing else really. So we would love to have you back for another interview if you're keen to. I'd be, uh, well, you're asking me to talk about some of my favourite things. Thanks for listening and supporting us as we continue to learn on our podcast journey. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast, you can head to www.patreon.com forward slash spaghettification podcast. I'd like to give a shout out to Steve from Home Loans Easy, Jess Stout, Paul Milvane and Andy Ladder for their ongoing support of our podcast.